Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and culture. I'm David Brow, and in this program we have news stories including Korean car makers rank highest in the latest quality surveys. We have the third instalment of Rob Fraser's Preparing for Travelling to the Snow and a great interview with Professor Graham Curry about lies, damn lies and autonomous vehicles. And there are five motoring minutes, the Infiniti QX80, the Toyota Fortuna Crusader, the Honda HRV, the Genesis and Reliability, and people being misled by car feature names. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. Let's begin the program with the news. Many people around the world are concerned with climate change, certainly the great majority of specialist scientists in this area. But while we may think globally, it's government policies that are focused on local issues that are likely to bring about the most immediate change. Demand for electric vehicles has increased 123% in London since the introduction of the ultra-low emission zone. The ULEZ only allows for cars producing minimal pollution to enter into the inner city. Using data from its website, the car buying platform CarWow found that searches for EVs also increased 56% in the rest of the UK. Inquiries for alternative fuel vehicles increased 77% in the UK capital and 44% in the rest of the country. According to one poll, 6 out of 10 people in Britain are aware of ULEVs. Nearly 70% of people agreed that the zone is a good measure, while more than a quarter remain unsure, and only 4% do not agree. Car manufacturers are continuing to look for ways to enhance the relationship with buyers to showcase their vehicles as lifestyle choices, not just mobility servers. To relaunch its product in Australia, Hyundai's luxury brand, Genesis, held a grand opening at its new studio in Sydney's central business district. It was a cocktail event at the location that Genesis says is defined by its spiral staircase encircled by a spectacular, bespoke, large-scale, curved LED screen. The other trend is the inclusion of loyalty benefits. Genesis owners will get a two-year complimentary subscription to the Genesis Lifestyle Program, incorporating benefits such as a lifestyle concierge and global privileges, which includes travel and medical assistance. Research suggests that people are being misled by the names of features in cars. Tesla's autopilot is not a perfected system that will allow you to forget about having to drive the car. Overdrive recently interviewed Professor Graham Curry from Monash University, who also has concerns about the misuse of words in another area of transport application. It comes again with these words we're using, these new words for new mobility. There's this word called ride-sharing, 
and Uber is very much part of the ride-sharing philosophy. I do, and the reason I don't like it is because it's a lie. The average occupancy of an Uber in traffic is 0.66 passengers per vehicle. And that implies that 34% of the time, the vehicles are, are, t- are traveling around, getting to places where they can pick people up or they're, they're looking for business. Now, congested cities don't need empty cars filling the road up trying to pick people up. Professor Graham Curry from Monash University. Recently, we heard that Los Angeles, the city of freeways, has been making great strides in building public transport systems. And now another American motor city, Detroit, is looking for alternative solutions to the motor car. There is a competition with funds of more than $250,000 to find new ideas for the ways people could move around the city. The Ford Motor Company and officials from Detroit and Michigan have announced the City One Michigan Central Station Challenge. It came out of Ford's work with the Corktown community last year to craft a community benefits agreement with the neighbourhood surrounding the long-blighted Michigan Central Depot that Ford plans to spend $740 million to rehabilitate. It is hoped the challenge spurs residents to find ways to make walking and biking more appealing or create neighbourhoods near the train station. Ride-hailing services such as Uber and Lyft typically offer cheaper fares than traditional services such as taxis. The latest development is now companies that facilitate peer-to-peer car sharing, where an owner rents their car to someone for a period of time, similar to renting out your house or granny flat through Airbnb. Renting costs can be reduced because owners do not have to pay for expensive special number plates, they don't have to conform to a raft of regulations, nor do the facilitating companies cover issues such as insurance. Now, in the state of Maine in America, the Peer-to-Peer Car Sharing Insurance Act requires private vehicle rentals to comply with the same laws that apply to commercial rental vehicles, rental vehicle transactions and rental vehicle companies. It is one of the 34 proposed bills in state governments designed to regulate peer-to-peer car-sharing companies. The three car brands under the Hyundai umbrella have taken the three top positions in the latest J.D. Power U.S. Initial Quality Survey. The survey questions owners after 90 days of a purchase in 233 areas in eight categories, including exterior, seating, driving experience, engine and transmission, features, interior, heating and air conditioning, and audio communications. Even the best cars have many people going back to the dealer. For each 100 Genesis vehicles sold, there were 63 times a vehicle was taken back to the dealer in the first 90 days. The industry average is 93. It's not all faults. Some are taken back because the new owner needs help to understand some of the systems. In fact, like past years, infotainment systems continue to be the source of most problems. However, it is also the most improved area for car makers. Voice recognition and Bluetooth connections are both improved for 2019. However, new technology, especially in luxury brands, created new problems for owners. (music) 
Honda first made their HRV small SUV 20 years ago. It was a boxy little station wagon shape with a chiselled nose. They stopped in 2006 and then came back in 2015 with a whole new model that looked more like a modern hatchback. It has topped the world sales charts in its segment, but it never made number one in Australia. They have just refined it, including improved safety. It projects a feeling of quality, although the engine and the CVT gearbox can sound a bit harsh. Only in two-wheel drive from $25,000 to $34,600 plus on-road costs. This is Overdrive across Australia. Station wagons that are based on utilities have become very popular lately. One such vehicle is the Toyota Fortuna Crusade, and Rob Fraser takes one for a drive. Based on the Hilux chassis with modifications to make it more car-like for family buyers, the Fortuna has genuine four-wheel drive credentials and strong Australian design DNA. The rugged frame, high-torque diesel engine, all-coil suspension and strong upper body have been proven in Australia under the world's toughest conditions on tarmac and off the beaten track. Inside, it's actually reasonably spacious and comfortable, packed full of the features that family buyers want. Best suited for five people, the Fortuna is capable of seating seven people. However, the third row seats are tight on space and are a fold to the side style that severely limits the available storage in the boot. The Crusade at a touch over $67,000 is a great alternative to the larger, more expensive four-wheel drives and delivers the compliant ride, spacious interior, convenient features and premium quality expected in a modern SUV. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, let's continue our series on driving to the snow and making sure you are prepared and that you do it in a manner that makes your holiday as enjoyable as possible. Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au, a website that will give you a wonderful range of information about driving around this fantastic country. Rob, getting to the snow we've talked about, what happens when you get there and you've got to park? Is that easy or is there lessons to be learnt? David, there are lessons to be learnt. As, as one of my friends actually, unfortunately, learnt the hard way one year down in the snow. Yeah? What happened? He parked somewhere he really shouldn't have been parking. Right. And we had a big snowfall dump overnight and a snowplough came in and didn't realise there was a car there. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. No, we all did. Uh, he was not very happy because he had a lot of damage to his car. But... He parked where he shouldn't have been parking. So and that, I guess that's the key in the snow area. You park where, in, where you're meant to be parking. You park in the designated areas because the snow plows know they're there. And, um, you know, you, you, you do what you're meant to be doing. I went years ago to the 50th anniversary of Land Rover coming to the Snowy Mountains. There's some lovely characters there. And they had the same problem, but because there wasn't designated parking, that if they went out in the snow and got bogged and the thing got covered and they might still be in the car or in the vehicle, then they ran the risk of being taken out in the most horrible way. It's certainly something to be very careful. By the way, the other interesting thing at that anniversary was that the managers got the best Land Rovers, which included a heater, 
when they sat in their office and the poor guys out in the field <laughs> got the base model, which didn't include a heater. One bloke went and bought a $5 heater simply to try and survive. But, okay, yeah. so you park in the defined areas. What else do you do? Well, little things like, uh, if you can, park with your nose facing slightly downhill rather than uphill because it's always more difficult to take off heading uphill because of the slipping. If you're going to park, leave your windscreen wipers up so they don't freeze to your windscreen. Angle of the tyres, does that help? Is that an issue? Yeah. If you're parking down a slope, you sort of, you you angle the tyres up the slope. So for whatever reason you do start to move, you'll, you know, you're not going to run away down the slope. So it's just just little things which uh, make it a little bit better. Going back to your point earlier about people who may break down somewhere, a lot of people who uh, spend a lot of time in the snow, they will do two things. They'll make sure their fuel is always topped up so that if they do break down, they can keep the engine running and keep the heater going. And I know a couple of people who actually put those very tall orange flags on that you often use when you're crossing across the desert so that you know people can see your vehicle coming over the top of the sand dunes. Yes, the reason being is because if you have a dump, you can just see this flagpole sticking up out of the white snow. Oh, I never even thought of that. Like a recumbent bicycle where you're down low and you want the semi-trailer behind you to see you. It's waving that. If I do get a lot of ice on the glass, what should I do to get it off? Well, the thing I suggest to people is when they go out to the car, jump in, turn it on. Turn the heater on, turn the windscreen to Mr. On and let your car run for a little while has a couple of benefits. One, it allows the vehicle to warm itself up a little bit. Two, you're starting to demist the windscreen. Never, I repeat, never pour hot water onto your windscreen because if there is any chip in there, it will crack immediately. Hmm. So use an ice scraper to, uh, and most of the, the ski fields have got ice scrapers there that you can use or borrow to clear off any of the, the glass areas. Hmm. And three, because the engine's been running for a while, it actually heats the bonnet and allows any snow to sit on there to slip off. It's very important to let it slip off before you move, even from the roof as well, isn't it? Well, it is, because if you don't, you can often have that flying back at the car behind you and prevent them from seeing or actually cause an accident for them. Oh, okay. I hadn't even thought of the other person. Forgive me, uh, my lack of charity. I was thinking that if you break suddenly, the ice might come off your roof, well, the snow come off your roof and cover your own windscreen. There's, there's a whole pile of things that can catch you out. Absolutely. Mm, Rob, that's lovely. Great to talk to you again. Some very good information. I appreciate your time. Thank you, David. And that's Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au, a site to tell you all about travelling in the many and varied situations in this country. This is Overdrive across Australia. The Nissan luxury brand Infinity has had a few attempts to establish itself in Australia. The range-topping QX80 had a major update in early 2018 with an external redesign and some more features inside. Primarily designed for the Middle East and USA, the QX80 has a small but strong following in Australia. Rob Fraser takes a look. The QX80 sits in a rare category, that of the luxury true four-wheel drive. There's not that many around anymore, and while it doesn't have the dynamics of, say, a Land Rover, it actually does most things pretty well. It sells in ridiculously small numbers of around 100 a year, but is important as a flagship model. 
I'm actually glad that Infinity continues with the vehicle and encourage buyers to at least have a drive while they can before the politically correct world of electric vehicles takes over. Until then, I delight in knowing that there is a beast of a four-wheel drive with a powerful V8 engine that will carry my family in luxury and comfort pretty much anywhere I choose to go, and at a reasonable price of around $110,000 plus the usual costs. While it does consume petrol at an alarming rate, it remains an exceptionally capable four-wheel drive and can tow almost anything you put behind it. You're listening to Overdrive. Many cars, including some utes, are called GTs when they are nowhere near Grand Tourers. We generally accept some marketing hype, but what about issues of safety? The American Insurance Institute for Highway Safety has found that many people overestimate the capabilities of cars that have assisted driving features. Tesla's system is called autopilot, but people have died being overconfident in its ability. Other names included in the survey were Nissan's Pro Pilot Assist and Audi's Traffic Jam Assist. The Consumer Reports organisation called for Tesla to drop the name Autopilot three years ago, and they are now calling for an inquiry. You're listening to Overdrive. Academic or private research is sometimes seen only as the way to discover the next big thing, the next revolution, the next quantum leap in what we can do. And indeed, it can be. But to get public coverage and funding, be it from your own organisation, government or private sources, it is often best achieved by proclaiming how great your breakthrough is and how profitable it will be. But a discovery is only the first step. To get good policy and implementation, we need to have clarity of thought, a realistic perspective of what a new direction might lead to and an understanding of the barriers and the concept of behaviour change. Now, Professor Graham Curry from Monash University is the Director of Monash Infrastructure, Chair of Public Transport and Professor in Transport Engineering. Not long ago, he wrote a paper, Lies, Damn Lies, Autonomous Vehicles, Shared Mobility and Urban Transport Futures. It's a pleasure to have him on the line to chat about this now. Professor Curry, thank you very much for your time. Good to talk to you. Professor, you did this paper, didn't you? And you've done a lot of research, not just on trying to discover the, the next big thing, but to implement things. Is it really critical that we get a lot more work done on what does it look like when it's working? Oh, I think so, because a lot of new developments are very speculative. Hmm. And although uh, they get a lot of media coverage, I rather think they're tinged with too much hype. Now, hype is uh, selling things that aren't real. And you might think, oh, does that really happen? Well, there are many, many failures. Monorails haven't really revolutionized cities. There was the famous Sinclair C5 motorcycle, which never really anybody used, but at the time was seen to be successful. And a really great technology, which hasn't really taken off, is uh, uh, maglevs. We've only got two in the entire world in, you know, 40-odd years since they were developed. There's a danger that when we're looking to the future, we're, we're seeking solutions that aren't really possible and we should really be investing in the ones that are. I think we've been having flying cars for the last 50 years. Yeah, that's a great example, helicopters. You know, there are 2,100 helicopters in the entire country of Australia. 
If you were to take them into one city and luckily try to deploy them to carry two people an hour, that would really be two trains worth. And that is no solution to the urban transport problem that our mega cities are going to be facing when they're the size of uh, London and Paris. Your city of Melbourne has just been nominated as one of the Uber sites for its flying taxi. If it were incredibly successful for what it is, it will be a mere drop in the ocean along the lines of what you've been talking about. That's my point. And we just need a realistic exploration of this issue. And I think there's a lot of fluff, fantasy, and not enough reality. And really, uh, we all have an obligation, I think, as transport planners to help society solve its problems. And this overemphasis of technology is is getting in the way. Do you, for example, take on the autonomous vehicles, which everyone says it'll be fantastic because you can then share vehicles? You have severe doubt as to whether that is what will unfold? The claim is that they're going to solve traffic congestion, that they're going to be safer. But in fact, a lot of US people have said that they're going to take over from public transport, which is very old and you know decaying. Well, you can take each one of these apart at the moment because there's no facts behind them. We often think of autonomous vehicles as being great for people with disabilities, and I agree that would be the case. Yet it's not going to help them if the system is swamped by those not with disabilities might well be able to swamp the local road system. And so we lose out in both cases. Yes, it's a great point. In fact, the point really is not just people with disabilities. People who haven't got a driving license, older people who don't drive. Here's an interesting conundrum. Anybody above the age of five up to 18 who can't drive, are we going to have five-year-olds getting in these cars on their own? Would you do that? It raises big issues about what's reasonable, and it also raises issues about sharing of the vehicle. Would you have your five-year-old share an autonomous car with strangers? You see, I think people will not share them. At the moment in Australia, our occupancy of our cars has been falling. There's been a disastrous fall over the last two decades. Cars in Melbourne have got 1.06 people per car in the peak. And I think these driverless vehicles may actually have only one person in them. And here's another problem. They can reposition on their own so they can be empty for some of the time. So do we need cars with occupancies below one? Do we need more vehicles on the street with nobody in them in congested cities? You see how this just doesn't seem to be playing out? So I do think there'll be a a growth in travel if we had full automation. In fact, we've done a research project on it where we think it may be between 10 and 20% additional travel in cities will occur. Now, I can't see why congested megacities like we have and we're getting, why they need 20% more trips to solve congestion. I think they're going to increase congestion by having 20% more trips. Now, I think there's a good reason to do more trips for those people that they're suppressed. Great. But it's not a solution for congestion. But one of the problems of ride-hailing services such as Uber and Lyft is that the government sees them as almost a freebie, that someone's implementing something that won't continually cost them money, yet it will in many ways because of the cost to the community. It's very important in a policy sense to understand what the real consequences and impact will be of those sorts of services. Would you agree? Yes, I I do think it's the, this is more example of an idea being pitched and then operated, which hasn't been fully thought out. 
Well, for a start, we we wonder about the finances of these systems and how permanent they are. They are already making lots of losses. Who pays for them? Well, the user pays, but a high share of the costs has gone into the driver who must maintain their own vehicles. Mind you, the these systems are extremely user-friendly, and you can't but marvel at that side of it and how that's leveraged technology. But I have a bigger concern over them. And it comes again with these words we're using, these new words for new mobility. There's this word called ride-sharing, and Uber is very much part of the ride-sharing philosophy. I do, and the reason I don't like it is because it's a lie. The average occupancy of an Uber in traffic is point. Six, six passengers per vehicle. It's actually 1.6, but includes the driver. And that implies that 34% of the time, the vehicles are, are, t- are traveling around, getting to places where they can pick people up or they're, they're looking for business. Now, congested cities don't need empty cars filling the road up, trying to pick people up. And this is why Manhattan, central parts of many cities have been saying, why do we need these things? They're empty. They're just adding to congestion. They're providing a, a good service to passengers, a cheap, cheaper service for passengers. But what about everybody else? Is it encouraging at the margin people from, in buses and efficient modes like buses and trains to travel in cars, making it you know, more congested? So I think there's a public interest concern about this. And it, it really annoys me that they're called ride sharing when the occupancy of the vehicle is below one. And uh, it also annoys me that public transport vehicles like trains and buses, trains can carry 2,000 people each vehicle, right? But they're not called ride-sharing, whereas a public bike with one person on it is called ride-sharing. It doesn't sound like sharing to me, and I think public transport's sharing because of the thousands of people on them. Professor Curry, I appreciate your time and your thoughts and your 30 years of experience, not only in research, but also in policy as well. That's a great commitment, and I've enjoyed that greatly. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And that was Professor Graham Curry from Monash University, who is an internationally recognised expert in the field of transport planning and operations. You're listening to Overdrive. Hyundai's luxury brand, Genesis, has just achieved first place in the J.D. Power U.S. Initial Quality Survey for the second year in a row. The survey is based on responses from purchasers and leasees 90 days after their purchase. The Korean Hyundai Corporation filled all the podium places in the survey, with Kia coming in second and Hyundai Cars in third. Genesis has just relaunched in Australia with their G80 midsize sedan and their G70 sports sedan. There's a lot of features and owner's loyalty programs and, for a luxury car, very competitive prices from around $64,000 to $102,000 drive away. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Rob Fraser, Alan Zervis, Professor Graham Curry and Paul Just for their commitment of time to this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course, there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.